Thank you, worship team, for leading us. You open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. This first book in the Bible has been for us a kind of a map of a man named Abraham as we've journeyed with him through many experiences, many locations, many seasons in his life. And uh, I pray it's been instructive to you as it has been and is for me. Before we do anything else, though, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We know your word is truth, and we know as we open uh, this book, the Bible, we know that all the scriptures God breathed. As we look this morning, we know it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the people of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Teach us, instruct us, if need be, correct us, and Lord, train us to be fully devoted followers of you. We thank you for your word, the practicality of it, the, the specific way your spirit takes your words and speaks into our life. We just look forward to how you're going to do that in these moments ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I used to pitch uh, baseball in high school and a little in college. And one of the unique times of a baseball game is when you get to the eighth inning. You're near the end of the game, and uh, the, the coach has some things to consider. One, he's got to figure, if he's got a lead, does he have the best defensive team in there? Does he make, need to make any substitutions? Is the starter tiring? Does he need to bring a reliever in? Because when you get near the end of the game, you need to figure out and consider how you're going to finish it. Abraham's in the eighth inning of his life. He needs to consider some things about how he's going to finish this. What's the future going to look like when he's gone? Significant considerations. Now, as we give an overview of how we got up to chapter 23, some things that are important. One, Abraham and Sarah have enjoyed a long marriage before her passing at the age of 127. Now, if they got married at the typical age of a young woman, they would have been married over 100 years. That's pretty that's impressive. Many people would say even 110, specifically 112. How's that for a couple anniversary get-togethers? That's a serious amount of time. They'd been married already 50 years before their journey of faith even began. Together they'd faced many hardships, and they finally at last received a divinely promised child in an old age. It was indeed a miraculous birth with Abraham the dad at 100 and Sarah the mom at 90. They had a deep love for this promised child, Isaac. The Lord had brought Abraham to a time in a place of enormous sacrifice and faith. And although he anguished, Abraham and Sarah were unified. Their faith was in God and Abraham obeyed without hesitation of offering up Isaac. Now at long last, after a hundred years of married life, 
Sarah's faith journey came to an end. Start in chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. Now during this journey, Abraham and Sarah, they had amassed great wealth. It's important to understand that. They had a large community of servants, wealthy, good reputation. We saw it right there among the sons of Heth. Yet they were still nomads. In other words, although the land promised to his descendants was was incredible amount of land, Abraham didn't own any land. He didn't have any personal land of his. So when the time came to bury his deceased wife, where do I bury her? And so he approached the people who were surrounding him, and he said, "I, I need a place to bury my wife, my beloved. He wanted and suddenly had need of a family gravesite, a private plot of land large enough to contain his wife's remains in his own in due time. And he begins this type of, I guess you could call it, negotiations with the sons of Heth. Now, most likely these are indigenous tribes that had been living in Canaan for hundreds of years, and so they owned a lot of land around there. And the offer, now first of all, they offer Abraham to say, hey, you got a great reputation among us. Why don't you take your wife and bury her in, in one of our caves? One, one of our, we would call kind of graveyards. Now, on the surface, that might seem like a good idea, but remember, these are polytheistic people. And they believed that where you were buried and the way you were buried said much about where you'd spend eternity, where you'd be after life. And so to bury Sarah there with this deceased suggested she would join them, wherever that would be, in the future. For Abraham, that was clearly not an option. He had left, remember, way back when we began, he had left his polytheistic, superstitious ways to follow the one true God. And Sarah would spend eternity with that one true God. And so only a private burial would do. In verses 7 through 9, by the way, we're going we're to cover a large chunk of Scripture, so you're encouraged your next step to read through it uh, this next week would help as well. We read in 7, Abraham rose, bowed to the people of the land of the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is an end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a burial site. Abraham wanted more than a place to bury Sarah. He began to look forward and thought, you know what, I, I'm going to have descendants. I need a place for my future descendants when they die. 
And so he just all of a sudden realized he just didn't need a site for Sarah. He had to think forward about his descendants. And this, this plot of land, which, which is kind of neat, is near the Oaks of Mamre. We remember Abraham hung out there a lot. And so I imagine there was probably a, a sense of uh, um, melancholy, that, that sense of, as you get kind of uh, whimsical when you look back and, and uh, remember, have all the memories of a location. Uh, there's great power in memories, and I wonder if Abraham kind of had that as he buried Sarah. Well, what struck me about this is the thought process, the practicality of Scripture. I mean, Abraham had to look forward and say, you know what, I need to consider some things. I need to make some plans for the future. That's instructive. Because you and I, as we near the later seasons of our life, need to consider if we plan for our family. This is kind of a subject you don't like to talk about much. But have you? I mean, what's it going to look like when you're gone? Have you taken care of your family to the degree you're able? How about your finances? Do you have a will? Do you have a burial plot? Don't leave that to chance. There are resources to help you do this. There's actually several people in the church who can help you financially. And uh, just there's some practical things to do. One of the things we had to do, and that we kind of joked about with our kids, but uh, we filled out a will. And, and if something happened to Cindy and I, where would our kids go? That's an important decision. By the way, Jeff and Deb, we forgot to tell you. Yeah, okay. But uh, you could have three, three in a hurry. But uh, just kidding. Um, so, but you need to think these things through, right? I mean, you should. And if you haven't, I, I strongly encourage you to do, because if you don't, someone will do it for you. And oftentimes those aren't what you would desire. And so I encourage you to do that. Abraham models that for us of looking forward. But he did it very specific, very intentional, as we find in verses 10 through 13. Ephraim says, okay, I'm not, I'll, I'll give you the field you want. I'll just give it to you. Now, it seems generous, but it's objected for several reasons, which make really good sense. Abraham wanted to own the cave because it gave him control over the future and the field, for that matter. He didn't want a long-term relationship with this permanent owner who could rescind his offer later, right? I mean, if you're, if you're renting land from somebody and all of a sudden they come back and say, oh, I changed my mind, I want it back. Well, all that planning would be for naught. Abraham didn't want that either. And his wife deserved a burial place that had been purchased, not free, not haggled over or borrowed. And so Abraham expanded his offer to include land on which the cave was located and when you see the price that was paid, that really doesn't mean nothing to us. It is an enormous amount that he pays for this. Didn't want to receive it as a handout. He wanted to purchase it, to pay for it, to secure it. And so he does it in front of the elders as witnesses of this. And so he plans for the future. And having secured the land, Abraham places Sarah's body in this new family tomb. He sealed it up. And afterwards, generations of Abraham's family would be laid here, including Abraham himself, Isaac and his wife, their son Jacob and his wife, and certainly many descendants later. All because Abraham took the time to plan for the future. There's, by way, another lesson here. Their model of being married for so long 
we're reminded that God established marriage to be a journey of faith. And it is a journey. It's all the more we consider that a spouse's future that you and I need to plan and prepare for our beloved um, and value that relationship by doing that that way is the best we can. And so Abraham had to consider his future of his family, specifically here, the burial and where they would be buried. But there is more considerations to take place. We read in chapter 24, follow along the first four verses. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you shall go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife for my son Isaac. What I find interesting as I've read through these final chapters is that all we know really of Sarah's activities between the ages of 90 and 127 is she gave birth to Isaac and then she died 37 years later. We don't know anything else. In the case of Abraham, the only events associated with Abraham's last 38 years are the selection of a bride for Isaac and his own remarriage in chapter 25, which we'll get to next week. Now, some background here is important. I, I tend to think in Abraham's case, with the death of Sarah, the mourning, I'm sure all the time he's spending with Isaac about preparing him to kind of take over uh, when Abraham passes on, that time had slipped by. And he finally realized, wait a minute, I, I haven't pursued a wife for Isaac. Either that or Isaac's reminding him, hey, Dad, um, let's pick up the pace. You know, we don't know what you but Abraham now has to consider that. In biblical times, parental involvement in choosing a mate was the norm. So when Abraham considered Isaac and a future mate, he got into action. And although time might have slipped by too quickly, it was time to get Isaac a bride. Now Abraham knew from experience the importance of having a woman of integrity, a woman of faith. He knew that Isaac needed a wife who would be someone who would value God's covenant and would really come and support and help Isaac in being a steward of all that God had provided for him. In verse 3, as we just read, it, for reasons we can probably guess and aren't clear, Abraham didn't want Isaac to marry anyone from the Canaanites, these, these idolatrous women. We know that's one of the main reasons. Because Abraham did not want his new nation to become mixed into the Canaanite melting pot. And so he sent his servant to his homeland. To accomplish this important job of finding a spouse for Isaac, Abraham calls his most trusted employee you could call him like a chief of staff. He had great trust in this man. And he says what seems kind of weird to us. Calls him in. He says, place your hand under my thigh. This was a custom. Now, if you remember as a kid, well, maybe you still do as an adult. Um, you had the pinky promise, right? You kind of make a promise and say, okay, promise on it, and you do the pinky thing. That type of thing. Or you shake on it, or you swear in your mother's grave, or you employ the classic cross my heart, hope to die, you know, poke a needle in my, yeah, okay, you've done that. Um, and so we make these vows. And adults enter into agreements by engaging in informal handshakes. They sign formal contracts. 
they raise their hands in solemn uh, affirmation. They place their hands on their chest. And these are cultural forms of making oaths that communicate, really, or, or attempt to, the seriousness of the oath. In Abraham's day, the cultural forms of making oath were no less strange than, than the pinky swear and certainly less gruesome than the offering to poke one's eye out and certainly not as strange as uh, swearing on your mom's grave. Genesis 24, Abraham's servant bound himself to Abraham by placing his hand under his thigh. And this solemn rite occurred, by the, by the way, again in Genesis 47, when Jacob made Joseph swear to bury him in Canaan. Commentators scratched their heads, scratched their thighs, wondering what exactly this rite meant. However, the significance really does seem clear. Abraham didn't want to die without the full assurance that Isaac would have a wife, but not just any wife, a wife of faith. And it was kind of like you could say almost a dying wish that he invited this chief of staff to be a part of. Now, as we go forward here, verses 7 through 9, we begin to see what this search might look like and what it involved. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give you this land, he will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. You see this matter of free will involved here. Verse 9, So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning the matter. So Abraham's search for a suitable companion for Isaac, it began and it ended with God's guidance. And that's important because one of the most important questions that people face in their life if they consider marriage is, who does God want me to marry? And to keep the bad, I guess the unhealthy motivations out of it, Abraham depended upon the supernatural leading of God. And as we follow this account, I think it's helpful for us, we can draw some really helpful, practical considerations and guidelines for seeking a future spouse. So if, if parents, if your child is single and not here, you might want to get a hold of these. Um, if you're married and you uh, haven't really thought through because you got younger kids, these guidelines will help. And certainly if you're single, get your pen out. Okay? The scriptures bring wise counsel to you and I. The first thing you and I can learn out of here is heed counsel. Heed the counsel of godly parents, of mentors. Now, not all parents are godly, that's true. And godly parents, they're not always right. Nevertheless, your chances of picking your right spouse increase greatly when your parents walk with the Lord and seek his counsel. Now, in my experience of counseling engaged couples and seeing them married, I rarely seen parents miss it when they're seeking God, when they're seeking his will first. We see nowhere that Isaac doubted, resisted, or questioned his dad's counsel. We don't see it anywhere. Because he cooperated once again. Remember, he cooperated with the offering. He didn't fight his dad on it. 
And here he doesn't fight his dad on this. There are a lot of children, and Christian children these days, who are, who are entering into marriage, and, and the one thing they want to do is circumvent mom and dad. I'm not going to have them tell me who to marry. I'm not going to listen to them. They're fuddy-duddy. They come from a different generation. What do they know about dating? You're foolish to ignore your parents if they're seeking God's will. Now let's follow this a little bit. Verse 10 through 14. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. He arose, went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Verse 14, now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one to whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and by this I shall know that thou hast shown loving kindness to my master. I mean, this is pretty specific. I mean, he's looking for very specific things because this master, is from the very beginning, his servant doesn't want to mess this up. Matter of fact, it's one of the first questions he asks, hey, what if she doesn't want to come? I.e., what if I mess this up? And, and so he gets really specific as he prays. And that's another point coming up here. But as we read through 10 through 14, there's something that we might miss. You know when, if you've ever seen that commercial, I saw it last night with Matthew McConaughey, and he's kind of doing his hair up and getting his jacket on, he walks out to this really nice car. And he gets in it, he doesn't say a word in a commercial, and just drives away. Now we look at that beautiful car today, and I thought, last night I said, if he was back in biblical times, he would hop on a camel. Because camels, at this time, were like limousines in our day and age. Not many people had them, especially 10 of them. And so these Maserati limousines in this day uh, are going with this servant as he goes to seek, look for a wife. Now as this close friend of Abraham, he came to believe in the one true God, and here he seeks God's leading just as he'd seen Abraham do. He asked God for specific guidance. Now, as you and I consider some more things, let me talk to you ladies. If a man asks you to marry you, and, but he's not willing to go to your dad, let's be clear, that's not God's man for you. If he's not willing to do that and respect your dad and his counsel, He's not the man for you. Young man, if you're not willing to go to this woman's dad, don't do it. Don't marry her. You need to have courage and the respect and the honor to go to this woman's dad. And the whole principle of the thing is you need to heed counsel. Don't, don't dare try to do it on your own. We make really bad mistakes. It's, and it's obvious why. We get caught up in emotion, don't we? This emotion of love and this emotion of what this flowery future might look like. And we don't always see people as they really are. It's the godly counsel from parents, the godly counsel from those who know you best that you would be wise to seek. But there's another guideline here, and we see it from this servant, Eliezer. 
He covered the process in prayer. He asked God for specific things to show him. Let me challenge you as parents, are you doing this now? I'm praying for my children's future spouses. And uh, one's in eighth grade, one, two are in sophomores, but it's at this point I want to pray, not only that God prepares my children, but there's a spouse out there somewhere that I pray God would prepare them. Parents, please pray for your children specifically about this big issue. It's one of the most important decisions they make. And so cover this whole process in prayer. Now, Eliezer didn't have advantages of the scriptures to read. He didn't really necessarily have the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit like we know it. He did have Abraham's promise, though, that God would provide supernatural leading. The parameters were specific. He looked for a woman who demonstrated uncommon hospitality, and he found a woman who was dragging and carrying water for 10 camels. That's hard work. As we probably would try to do the math, that's probably like two hours of work to water these camels. And her response would say an awful lot about her character, and we see it in verse 17. Servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Then she watered his camels, just like he'd kind of laid out there as a condition. Look at the end of verse, um, as you go on to verse 18, um, verse 19. Now when she had finished giving a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they were finished. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all the camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. It brings us to another point. Look for Christ-like character qualities. Character. Those are the inner qualities that set one apart from ordinary people. Look for character. If a man you're seeing or consider dating is not polite to people like janitors or waiters or waitresses or store clerks, but he's only polite to those whom he wants to impress, big flag. If he doesn't treat his mom well, big flag. If he doesn't respect his dad, big flag. Back off. Young man, if you're dating or seeing a woman or considering it, I wonder, is she generous to select people or everyone? Is she take serious what the future would look like? Does she take serious biblical truth? Those are character qualities we need to be aware of. This servant's looking for character. Hospitality, generosity, gratefulness. Their character qualities are all made up in the specific things that he's looking for. Verse 23 through 25 seem to indicate that Rebecca came from a hospitable family as well. You'd be wise to look at your family. The servant says, hey, is there a place in your parents that I can lodge or somewhere around there? And she says, sure. She doesn't go back and ask dad and mom. It's almost like the family just normally does this. They're a hospitable family. And so that's not one of them. It's a free, a free point here is to pay attention to the family. Uh, that they come from. Because you're not only marrying them, you're marrying your in-laws. Okay, You'd be wise to consider that. 
So this servant found Rebecca to be unselfish, thoughtful, courteous, hard worker, diligent. Eliezer had hit gold, and he knew it. And then he began to pr- proceed reflectively. I, I really like the way God put that verse in there. He gazed at her and watched. He watched what she did, how she did it. You know, she could have been begrudging on this, grumbling the whole way as she carried the water for the camels. We don't see that, but we do see the servant watching very closely. Proceed reflectively. Pay attention. Observe when seeking God's choice. Observe little things. You have to be sensitive and you have to have courage to question things. Don't dismiss unsettling attitudes, issues. Take time to observe the other person when they're under pressure. How do they handle conflict? Are they prone to anger? Do they tend to compromise? Pay attention and proceed reflectively, objectively, as you move forward. You'll be glad you did. And then verse 33 gives us another guideline. But when food was set before him, the servant, he said, I will not eat until I've told my business. And he said, speak on. I love this. The servant gets his food and he says, I'm not going to eat this. i got to tell you what happened. And he shares this story of what he had prayed, how God had led him, and he shares it with this family very clearly. And his whole point is God's been involved with this from the beginning. I saw his leading, his supernatural leading. I've sensed it. I've seen that leading. What's his point? Is this a woman who's going to cooperate with that leading? Will she come with me? That's the issue, really. And so the servant shares all this, and what he begins to think through is this idea of spiritual compatibility. Is she compatible with Isaac? Is she a woman who's going to respond to God's leading? Because the servant knew Rebecca's family of origin. Quick study of Abraham's family, by the way, shows Rebecca is a great niece. Interesting enough. He explained his mission. This servant explained and tried to measure the spiritual temperature of this household, and so he ignores the food. He comes right out and says, here's why I'm here. He then tells of Abraham's calling, his journey of faith with God, his wealth, the purpose, his purpose in being there. He lays it all out and doesn't hold anything back. Spiritual compatibility. This is huge. As Christians, I often hear a lot of time, well, I'm dating, he's a Christian. Okay, that's a good start. But are you spiritually compatible? That's a different question. And by that I mean three things. Do you share a common treasure? That's a huge question. I mean, does the person you're considering dating treasure above all, even you, Jesus Christ? Is he or she treasure Christ above all, just like we sang? When that's the case, you share a common treasure. You don't want someone compromising. You don't want someone who loves Jesus on Sunday, but Monday to Saturday, they're in love with everything else. But you want someone who shares a common treasure. But let's be honest, you also want someone who has a common blueprint. Scripture. If one of you is trying to lay your life and follow Scripture and the other one's trying to found a culture, you're going to clash and clash often. You don't have a common blueprint and you're asking for trouble. Being spiritually compatible not only has a common treasure in Christ, but has a common blueprint in God's word. But there's a third thing that don't miss. It's a common strength. 
Because who do you go to when things get tough? Who do you go to when you're weary? If one of you goes before God on a regular basis and seeks the Spirit leading, and the other one just picks up the newest book or just says, I'm going to wing it, you're asking for trouble. You're not spiritually compatible. So if you want to be spiritually compatible, remember those three things, common treasure, common blueprint, common strength. They will guide you. They will serve you well. And it seems in this, the servant's concerned about this idea of spiritual compatibility and have a woman cooperate with God's leading here. And throughout this, God plays a central part in orchestrating this whole event. Look at verse 49. I love the servant's question here. So now if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know, and I may turn to the right hand or the left. In other words, I told you all this. What's your answer? Let's get on. Let's get on with it. And so he, he lays the question right out there. Rebecca's family's response is key. It's going to say a lot about their attitude. Now, it looks like everything's a go. But all of a sudden, Rebecca's brother comes. Oh, yeah, maybe she'll go, but let her stay another 10 days. Now, we don't know their motivation in there. But what we do know is the servant says, no, I don't think so. Either she's going to go or she's not. And they said, well, let's, let's ask her then. And so they do. And we find that there later in the text. Laban and Bethuel answered, the matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah's before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Okay, so there's permission there. But then again, they kind of begin to fall back a little bit on and say, hey, look, wait 10 days. But then they're going to make Rebekah actually ask her to make the decision, and we find that a little bit later in the text. Verse 57, they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Now, I don't know about you. If you're a young lady, you got a stranger come from 500 miles away, tells you this story, this prayer, why he's there, you never met him before. He's a complete stranger. This is a huge decision. Now, she'd heard enough to know that God had sovereignly arranged these circumstances. She'd committed herself to a life of faith. She'd, considered, she'd committed herself to a life of purity. We know she was a virgin. Not knowing where things might lead. Not knowing what she'd find along the way. She said, yes. I'll cooperate with God's leading." In verse 65 through 67, we read about the wedding night. The culture, marriage thing was different then. But look at the end of verse 67. It tells us one of the purposes of marriage, but also lends us insight into Isaac. Rebecca comforted after his mother's death. That was three years before this. So for three years, Isaac had been mourning. And if you've lost a parent, you ever notice that every year? About that same time of year, you can't even put a finger on All of a sudden, there's this motion. And, and I read about that, and I said, that's just humanity right there. And so not only did Isaac find in Rebecca a companion, but he found a comforter, a helper. He found someone, clearly, that God's hand was upon. From start to finish, God guided every step to bring these two together. Let's wrap this up. Some consideration of personal applications, especially in the eighth inning of your life. Abraham planned for the future of his family. 
These accounts leave us with incredibly practical applications. Number one, take time to plan for your family's future. It might be a family's grave. It might be a financial. It might be a will, where you're going to leave your children or, or what you want your funeral service to even look like. Take time. If you need to draft a will, do it. If you need to sit down with your family, do it. But take time to plan for your family's future. Learn from Abraham. Number two, always, always, always pursue God's will. Take steps to ensure seeking in a spiritually healthy way, whether it be the future or a spouse. Pursue God's will. Make every area, every decision align with what you believe to be his will. Seek him about your future plans, about all your decisions. And number three, never overlook the importance of God-given resources in choosing a mate. Counsel from parents, from godly friends, counsel and guidelines from God's word, and from the Holy Spirit. So take time to plan for your family's future, always pursue God's will, and never overlook the importance of God-given resources in choosing a mate. Let's learn from Abraham in the eighth inning of his life about how to finish the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I especially this week have thought of those who are single in our congregation, those who are here maybe listening, or those of our children who might be at college or somewhere else. God, I, I thought of them, and Lord, we pray this moment for them. We pray for their protection from the lies of our culture. We pray, God, you keep them pure. Lord, that you'd bring into their life mates who love you and who share a common treasure a common blueprint and a common strength we pray they'd be sensitive to your leading in all things Lord we lift them to your care and trust your sovereign leading in their life we pray their hearts would be sensitive to counsel as parents Lord there'd be a cooperation like Isaac modeled we love our children so much, God. I want the best for them. So we lift them up to you. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who, Lord, children might be grown up and out of the home. And as they look forward, they're at that place they need to start making decisions for the future. Might they always pursue your will. Give them leading, guidance to know what to consider how to consider it. Lord, and that might be hard conversations about death and funerals and those type of things, and those aren't always easy. But God, I pray that you'd lead them, guide them in this season of their life. Lord, we bless you. We love you. We thank you for your words to us, words with such practical applications. It continues to boggle my mind. We lift you up as the one true God this morning. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.